Hamlet podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's book club episode all about Othello. This play will always be uncomfortable. Centuries before the word intersectionality was coined, Shakespeare managed to create a piece that boils and foments at an intersection between more hotspots than can fit in a sentence. Of course it is about race, because it cannot not be. The title character is a Moor of Venice. But as well as Othello himself, we also have conflicts over age, class, rank, gender, religion and even continents. There are so, so many conflicts, and indeed Shakespeare seems to make the spaces of the play ever more enclosed as the play progresses, so that these conflicts come to the fore. We begin on the streets or canals of Venice, and we end on a bed in a chamber in Cyprus. This play has the smallest cast of any major tragedy, and the tightest time frame. It might as well be set inside a pressure cooker. The story isn't a million miles from the subplot of Much Ado About Nothing. Another villain, this time with considerably more to say for himself, makes a soldier believe that his lovely wife has been sleeping with another man, a colleague. But this time things get much worse. There's no wedding, no argument and no hope for the woman to be redeemed and restored at the end. Instead, this villain so manipulates his so-called friend that the jealous husband murders his wife in their bed. When the betrayal is explained to him after the woman is dead, he kills himself. After such a short synopsis, you might wonder why on earth anyone would want to see that story, and why a play about such things could rank as one of Shakespeare's greatest. I think we watch it because it is uncomfortable. No more than ancient Greek tragedy, we watch for the curious pleasure of being presented with impossible circumstances, and watching people try to act nobly, or heroically, according to their own moral compass, and doing, for the most part, the best they can. We wonder what might have happened if only Othello had known, or indeed wonder how we might behave in such circumstances, and then we can go home, glad that we have no such villainous friends intent on destroying our lives. We hope. Othello's own name seems to be Shakespeare's invention, but Shakespeare drew on a great deal of sources to put this play together. The story of the jealous husband came primarily from the Hundred Tales by Giraldi, but there's a good deal more in the background. As far back as 500 years ago, in the early 16th century, pageants in England often featured a heroic African leader or prince, a warrior of note who'd be paraded around as part of the festivities. While, of course, it's more than likely these were portrayed by white performers, I don't mean to suggest that there were no people of colour in Elizabethan or Tudor England. There weren't many, but recent books like Miranda Kaufman's Black Tudors are doing fascinating work to revise our perceptions of the period. Certainly, people of colour could have been considered unusual, but they were there. They lived their lives, they worked and they earned money. So it is for Othello in Venice. He is a very skilled soldier and has had considerable success. The play begins with Iago's efforts to convince an old man that Othello is sleeping with his daughter. In the very next scene, Othello is summoned before the Duke. But it's not for this apparent sexual transgression at all. It's because there is a military problem, and the state needs Othello's help. 
Into this meeting storms Brabantio, the angry old man, railing against Othello for bewitching his daughter. The daughter, Desdemona, makes it very clear that she has not been magicked or hoodwinked. They are very clearly in love, and the match gets official approval, even in the same moment as Othello is dispatched to deal with the Turks in Cyprus. In no time at all, Shakespeare has presented us with a very sophisticated problem. This apparent outsider, a thoroughly undesirable match for a self-respecting Venetian's precious daughter, is also the only hope of Venice's survival in the current conflict. We love you for your military prowess, but we have no desire for you to be a part of our family. Immigrants all over the world still face this quandary of prejudice. Even if they gain acceptance for their professional abilities, it can prove infinitely harder to get social acceptance, whether this is because of appearance, race, religion, you name it. And Shakespeare sets it up so quickly, you barely have time to question it. Events move very fast in this play. They are all but stage-managed by the lead character, he who has even more to say than Othello, his friend, Iago. Just as Othello can trace his development back to English pageantry, Iago comes from a meandering line drawn all the way back to medieval mystery and morality plays. The devil always had the best lines, and personifications of sin, jealousy, evil and so on were almost always the most interesting characters. Within this play, Iago plays a similar role. He speaks to us in eight soliloquies, lays out several of his plans and shows us just how clever and wicked he can be. He's almost like a clown, albeit a very menacing one. He's amazingly quick on his feet and improvises better than any other Shakespearean character, good or bad. In one of my favourite instances of this, Iago pretends to be drunk with Rodrigo. All the while Iago is telling Rodrigo to go and get money and that he'll then use this money to help Rodrigo seduce Desdemona. As soon as Rodrigo exits, promising that he'll go sell all his land, Iago switches from lumpy prose to oily verse, showing us immediately that it's all been a con, that he's been in total control. In the hands of a good actor, it's terrifying. As one of Othello's soldiers, Iago obviously goes to Cyprus too, but he goes bearing a grudge. He resents Cassio, who seems to be getting all of the promotions, and so he concocts a plot to ruin Othello's happiness and Cassio's reputation. I think it's no accident that Shakespeare moves the action from Venice to Cyprus. In Venice, Othello is the outsider. In Cyprus, they all are. Even though the island should have been under Venetian control, the army is there to fight against the Turks, the great threat to Venice at the time. Conveniently, a storm removes them and there are no Turkish characters in the play. But the setting in Cyprus means that they are nearby and as a result there's a lot of talk throughout of people behaving like Turks or turning Turk and so on. It gives another other, as it were. Othello is not the only other, indeed he's the leader of the Venetian army. Shakespeare gives Othello all of the gifts, professional skill, amazing language and poetry, authority, experience, even benevolent weather that removes his enemies. If it weren't for Iago, we could imagine that Othello and Desdemona would have a beautiful honeymoon in Cyprus. The island nation was the birthplace of Aphrodite, or Venus, the goddess of love. Where better to have a honeymoon? 
but of course things go in a radically different direction. Cyprus is also a kind of a halfway point, located between Europe and Turkey, and of course between Europe and North Africa. As such, it is the ideal location for this play, the intersection of these various areas and cultures. Othello is identified as a moor. Thousands of litres of ink have been used up over the centuries debating what this might mean. A moor was someone who came from Mauritania in North Africa. It also meant a Muslim. In Shakespeare's time, this could be someone from anywhere between Spain and India. Of course, the colour of a Muslim's skin might not necessarily be black, but the play speaks so consistently about the darkness of Othello's skin that there can be little doubt about it. For reference, the word black appears 11 times in the play. The word more has about 60 appearances. Amid it all, Rodrigo, in some ways even more unpleasant than Iago, since he will do anything merely to possess Desdemona and is horribly racist to boot, calls Othello the thick lips. It's really ugly. But he's not alone. There's a very uncomfortable frequency of animal metaphors. They're very often to do with sex, too. The notion of Othello having and sleeping with a white wife conjures up images of rams and dogs and many other beasts throughout the play. Monkeys, goats, the lot of them. It's a horrific racist language that does appear throughout. God only knows how this company might treat any child that Othello and Desdemona might have. All the way back in Titus Andronicus there was a mixed race baby, but this world of Venice and Cyprus seems so hostile to the concept of their love that it's no wonder they don't get very far past their wedding night. Iago, meanwhile, has a much more established relationship with his wife, Emilia. For my money, she's one of the greatest women in Shakespeare, more than a match for her clever husband, and given some very fiery speeches. Sadly, they don't quite share every detail of their lives, and Iago manages to use a little joke from her to ruin the lives of those he's taken against. When Emilia sees Desdemona drop a handkerchief, she decides to take it home and give it to her husband. This is harmless enough, but of course nobody should steal. This handkerchief, as it turns out a handkerchief imbued with an almost impossible level of sentimental value, is the prop that Iago uses to undo everyone. It seems almost impossible that his lies and fantasies should work so well. In almost no time he manages to turn Othello against his wife and makes him believe that she has been sleeping with Cassio for years. This is logically impossible, but that's not the issue. The exaggerations in the play are deliberately fantastic, I think, because they give us a sense of how much we are capable of believing when we become jealous. Jealousy is, according to this play, the green-eyed monster which doth mock the meat it feeds on. Even as jealousy consumes us, it laughs at us. Jealousy is our weakest emotion, and it brings nothing but harm. So Shakespeare builds this claustrophobic nightmare of a play in which a loving couple can be torn apart in a matter of hours on no more evidence than a missing, stolen handkerchief. The big question is always why Iago can be so vicious, so unfathomably evil. By the end of the play, when Desdemona and Emilia are dead and Iago has been captured, Othello asks the other witnesses why he hath thus ensnared his soul and body. 
It's the question on everyone's lips, and Iago's response is legendary. Demand me nothing. What you know, you know. From this time forth, I never will speak word. I think because he so resolutely refuses to explain himself, he will always fascinate us. There's a hint much earlier in the play that he thinks Othello might have been sleeping with his wife, and that for mere suspicion in this regard, he will do what he does in revenge. But it's only a suspicion. He knows he doesn't know. Likewise, he hints that Cassio's promotion was at his expense. But these are only a sprinkle of motivation on the great feast of his villainy. Equally unfathomable is the trust that Othello places in him. Throughout, almost, he's called Honest Iago. In his soliloquies and asides to us, the audience, we can tell from very early on that he's anything but honest. In a neat little trick, Shakespeare lets Iago's military role play a part in our understanding of him. He is the standard bearer. So, he's the one who holds up the flag and shows everyone whose army it is. He's all signs, and people are content to believe only what he shows them. It's a small little detail, but a wicked irony. Don't believe everything that people tell you. I'm tempted to think that Othello and Desdemona would be the happiest couple in Shakespeare if it weren't for Iago. She adores listening to his stories, and he has some terrific tales collected from his various travels. In her, he finds someone with whom he'd like to build a home. Someone to build a life with after all the death that he has encountered. He thinks of her as the light of his life, and then he is so misled that he chooses to extinguish this light. It's excruciating to watch, because you really don't feel that they deserve this. But she doesn't speak up, and he probably wouldn't listen anyway, and so it all falls apart because he chooses to believe what he is told. Othello gets quite a few mentions for not being jealous. Desdemona even jokes that the good weather where he was born has burned such humours out of him. Apparently it was believed that the climate where a person came from could influence a person's personality and makeup. I'm not quite sure about this. What might it mean, for example, for Irish people, beset as we are with such a notoriously bad climate? Of course, the flip side of Othello's non-jealous nature is that when it is awakened, it is deadly, as he proves. It takes only the mildest manipulation for Iago to stoke his great furnace of jealousy, which turns murderous with horrifying speed. Many scholars have pointed out that a popular saint at the time the play was written was the Spanish saint Santiago Matamoros, Saint James, the Moor Killer. Iago is the Spanish for James. It's certainly not impossible that this is why Shakespeare's Moor Killer got his name. This play is so often termed Shakespeare's race play. Technically, Othello begins seemingly like a comedy, but of course events go very quickly, very sharply towards tragedy. The real tragedy is that the racial anxieties and prejudices that the play exposes are still so immediately recognisable and deeply felt hundreds of years later. It can feel like we have made no progress at all. There are sexual and even religious anxieties in the play too, but of course the plausible racial motivation for Iago's hatred, and indeed the consistent othering of Othello, by himself and by those around him, 
make the issue of his race and his racial otherness the most immediate question in the play. Happily, it is no longer considered acceptable for white actors to perform the role in blackface, although Verdi's operatic version of the story does still seem to think it can get away with this. Productions occasionally experiment with how to cast the play. Patrick Stewart played Othello with a company of African-American actors in 1997, wherein he was the only white performer. More recently, the RSC production in 2015 had actors of colour as Othello and Iago. The most recent production of the play at the National Theatre in London had Adrian Lester as Othello and Rory Kinnear as Iago, and the play seemed entirely to be about class and competition, rather than being about race at all. But the issues the play invites us to think about are still with us. If we wince at the way people discuss people of colour and otherness and different religions and so on, it is because we recognise such ideas all too immediately and such treatment because they have not gone away. And if the play can teach us anything, it is that such cruelty can only lead to destruction. Othello will always have a special place in my heart because it was the first professional production I worked on in Ireland and got paid for it. For next week, we're going back to the history books and starting on the second half of our journey through the history plays. There are four of them left and they begin with the first part of King Henry VI. I must confess that I don't know these plays particularly well, so I'm excited to get started and have a read of them. I hope that you will too. On the website, I'll put a link to an online text where you can have a read of the play. And of course, while you're there, you can find a wide range of other support materials. As I'm sure you already know, it's all available at thehamletpodcast.com. Thanks, as always, for your company, and I'll speak to you next time.